Welcome to IB Talk, the leading podcast for the insurance industry across Australia, New Zealand, and throughout the Asia Pacific region. Brought to you by Insurance Business. Hello, and welcome back to IB Talk. I'm Danny Wood, news editor of Insurance Business Australia. Steadfast is Australia's largest broker network, and the company just held its annual convention in Adelaide, a big event in any Aussie broker's calendar. Before the convention, IB Talk sat down with Robert Kelly, Steadfast CEO and co-founder. He's an industry heavyweight with an impressive 50 years experience and widely regarded as one of the most influential people in Australia's insurance industry. Robert joined us from his office in Sydney. I started by asking him how he got into insurance in the first place. It was over half a century ago, wasn't it? It's true. Uh, Back in uh, February 1969, um, I just started to uh, work for an island trading company called Nelson Robertson at that stage, and they were sending me to operate in the Pacific area to operate our lay. And I, I went with their general manager and the chief clerk of Bankers and Traders, the B in Bankers and Traders being the B in QBE. Okay, so the QBE bought that company. Very quickly, I wondered what the chief clerk of Bankers and Traders did. And he said, quite simply, um, you're our agents over the Pacific and um, you sell our insurance and you bank the money to us and um, whatever you bank each month, we send you 33 and a third percent back, right, for, for commission. So I thought, this is an interesting business, isn't it? You don't have to buy your stock. Stock's unlimited. It's a capital light to be an insurance broking, okay? It's just basically your own resources. And so for the six weeks that we travelled through the whole of Pacific doing, um, which was my orienteering job to go up there and operate out of lay, I had a quick course in insurance, working, watching what we did, watching how our agency business worked, watching everything. And um, I came back and uh, resigned and uh, said, I'm an insurance broker. So... (laughs) That's how I got into it. I chose to do it. I thought it was a, an opportunity to have a product that, you, as I said before, that you didn't have to buy and you only paid for it when somebody paid paid you for it. That was, yes. The same age as me. It's 52, 52 50. years ago. Yeah. yeah nearly yeah. 53. Must have been quite something travelling around the Pacific back back then. It's probably changed a lot. Have you been back there and visited uh, these old places? Uh, no, I No, I haven't, except that my... Uh, my recollection of what a magnificent place Papua New Guinea was and the Solomons actually were picturesque beautifully. But uh, when I when I was there, there was still a thing called a boy house, which was a, a like a cubby house out the back of the white people's houses where they employed a local indigenous person who did everything around the house. And I could tell even then that um, there was dissension amongst the Papuans uh, against the way the white people had, I guess, treated them up there. And then, and then, of course, rather, in my view, stupidly, Australia gave them independence in the early 70s when they were not ready for independence. So we sort of almost did a Pontius Pilate thing by 
saying, well, okay, you've been a territory, we've been looking after you, we'll give you independence and off you go. They, they weren't ready for that. And it seemed like a wonderfully appropriate thing to do. But I think time has proven that they were not ready for self-government at that particular time. So it, it then deteriorated up there. So this is a long way of telling you the reason I haven't been back there is it's quite dangerous in some areas. Of course, there's a great resentment that runs back over the 50, 60 years that the transition took place. And it's a case study in when do you let go, I'd say. There's a time to hold them and a time to throw them, as they say in the song. And, and we threw them too soon, in my view. So mm. Let's flash forward 50 years and you, you're now running, I guess, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, broker network in Australasia. And what, what do you enjoy about doing that? What keeps you, keeps you doing it? The thing that keeps me uh, intrigued and by it is it's it's fascinating. Uh, we haven't varied from our original ideas of setting up a network and providing services that nobody uh, could provide uh, to the same degree as we could because of um, the actual cost of doing it. So you, we've had dramatic change in regulation. You've got dramatic change in consumerism. You've got the insurers coming and going and so it's it, it, what I, I like about it is that it's a, a fascinating business it's a, it's a insurance is something you can't do without it's not like it's not an optional buy commercial people have to have to get it people that have got mortgages have to get it so I still think that the proposition that we went out with in 1996 which basically uh, was none of us will be as good as all of us if we pull together, uh, still stays true today. So it's always challenging. It's it's always interesting. I mean, getting the capital as a public listed entity to be able to buy businesses and give people capital events and let them let them feel comfortable that if they do want to put their hand up and sell, they've got a friend there who's oh, I wonder what happens or how will this work? That's interesting. In case we're going, and I think that the the main uh, thrust of this business was run the network to, with the, uh, uh, I guess, the epitome of excellence in everything we can do. So we, we are, um, I would say, more keen now today than what we were in 1995 when, I struck, when we first structured look, doing this thing on making sure that if you're a steadfast broker that you've got the best of every service in, uh, that you can possibly have and, and you don't have to go out and buy that yourself that's the fun part about it is making sure that the product that you market uh, as a steadfast network broker gives you your own autonomy. You're still you. You're still Robert Kelly Proprietor Limited, uh, but you've got the strength of nearly $10 billion worth of DWP behind that and the respect, I guess, in some ways that we've gained over this you know, 25, 26 years that we've been operating like this. Of, of, of being reliable and doing the right thing. So it's, it's, we're, we're not hiding skeletons and we're not patching leaks and we're not going, oh, God, this is not. We're actually working on the forefront all the time for legislation and what the consumer should uh, expect from us. So that's the exciting part of it. Live entertainment, insurance, natural catastrophes in the northern parts of Australia, they're all kind of areas where insurers don't seem to have a big enough pool of money to pay what might happen. That's exactly the place. I mean, the, the, there's a few competing areas here. Firstly, the consumer should have all their rights at law. 
it would be great if you could say, if you want to go to that live venue where there's going to be 8,000 people and you just and you just sign this, then if you get hurt here or you get COVID or you get anything like that, you've taken your own responsibility to might get that. If you could do that, then you could insure those venues. But, of course, and I, and I, I have empathy for the legal fraternity over this, their job is to protect the consumer's rights if something happens that's beyond their control. So it, it, it is very, very difficult. You've got the insurers who don't want to take the risk because they don't want to get a multitude of claims over something that's probably beyond their control if somebody's spreading COVID through there. So, yeah, it's very difficult. I'm, I'm, is, is the only option, like with, with live entertainment, some state governments have stepped forward and helped with the insurance. Is the only option with things like this government sort of intervention to help? Well, it, it, the two things would be really good, as if there could be some simplification on the law that says, I realise I, wa I want to go and see the Rolling Stones live, okay? And I know I'm going to go in there and there's going to be a whole lot of people pushing against one another, but I, I want to take that risk if I get COVID because it's basically COVID which is creating that problem now. I guess I'm thinking more from the point of view of the events organisers, like having to cancel these huge events when there's a COVID thing. Is that possible yeah. to...? If you then step through and say the position like we're in, we run, we, we run um, usually, we have in the past, but not for the last uh, two years, we're having a, having an attempt next month to run our conference. Okay, so for instance, our conference um, means that this organisation has to commit somewhere somewhere south, south of two and a half million dollars to run that conference and we have to commit and we have to pay for that we can't get insurance for that okay against if if a, if a state government closes down a state if COVID breaks out and things like that so it would be good to get some government help on that but the reality is in my experience you've got local government you've got state government and you've got federal government to get the agreement between the local council, the the incumbent state political party, and then the feds to sort of recognise that, I think it takes a magician to be able to do that. I, my, my view is that it makes good press for journalists to write, maybe the government should step in, maybe they should do it. Like, the biggest example you can see of that is that everybody's agreed to run a reinsurance bill to help the people up in far north Queensland. How long ago was that? Now, when you say, let's run a reinsurance bill, the government will back it, it'll be good, that makes great press. Then sit down with all of the competing people and work out how it works, who does what, what the limitations are, what risks are taken, okay, and then get the local government happy, the state government happy, and the federal government happy, and get it all signed off and done and put to bed. That's why things take a long, long time. Let's say government has the right to act on behalf of its constituents in a jurisdiction that it thinks is the best interest of the uh, of the constituents, not in the best interest of the people risking capital to come and put in live gig on or something like that. So it's it's very difficult when you get to those situations. But mm. government says yes, we should we should do it. Do what? You know, government should help. How? What's government going to do? Is the government going to say, well, look, for live gigs, 
we'll shut down the rest of the state, but we won't shut down that live gig. Or when you ponder the variables in trying to do something like that, do you do you have social distancing? Do you have mandatory masks? The the pragmatism of business, from my point of view, is to not make statements, but to come up with solutions. Then make the statement after the top after the solution, which is that you never get around to do it with government, unfortunately. Mm. I guess the other thing you mentioned there was digital transformation and and all the insurance companies now seem to have these great big complicated digital transformation plans. They have their chief digital officers. So they seem to be trying, but what is it you think they're doing wrong? (laughs) I can answer that question really well. (laughs) The, The answer to that question is, look, I think they've got a lot of legacy systems and it's very difficult to change the legacy systems over and and I think that um, uh, the allocation of capital to doing that is quite quite high, and and uh, although they may be able to capitalise some of that, I wouldn't like to be the first CEO to turn around and say, "Look, our systems that we've been using are all shit, right? and we've spent no money on them." Okay, and we realise now that that we should have spent money, and that the, that the digital transformation is overshadowing us. So. Why aren't they? There's so many people out there offering digital solutions. Those digital solutions, are, if you make a decision to do it, do it, it's an 18-month lead time sometimes for an insurer to get something done. They just can't go bang. If you go back 18 months now and have a look at digital transformation as opposed to what can be done today, it's like the moon. Okay, and compared to the earth, it's changing all the time. And I think the reason there's hesitancy is that lots of the big insurers have spent considerable amount of money, hundreds of millions of dollars, trying to get the solution. And then whenever they get something to roll out, it was great 15 months ago when we started the program, but hey, look at this now. And, and, and I think the biggest thing that insurers have ignored is the incredible database and information base they've got about people and location and claims. And so you've still got a huge amount of structure in insurance companies about delegated authority, who can who can accept risk, who can't accept risk, what they're going to do. So when you're going to change that structure through and go, well, okay, we're not going to ask 50 questions. We're going to ask seven salient questions. We're going to pop those into our database, which is voluminous, okay, and see whether we should write that risk. That's what they have to do, and it's really hard to do. Firstly, a lot of their databases are not don't talk to one another. They're, the The idea of having a, a, a big digital warehouse that you can pull up and go, Let's check whether we should write stuff in postcode 2163. And it comes back and goes, bing, there's all the claims you've had at 2163. Okay, can we drill down onto those? That the use of digital data is quite difficult. They don't have propeller heads sitting around in a dark room crunching the data. We do. Our data warehouse can tell them everything. It's, it's quite amazes me how, how far progressed we are in having that information and having the, the having uh, where the claims occur, having having the pricing mechanisms in, in various postcodes and 
we can drill down the streets as well in an hour. So digital is a very difficult thing for them to do. If you're an advice type of underwriter, as you're an advice broker, then you have to gather a lot of information, put that into your systems and, and work out whether you want to write it or not. So it's not easy. If you, if you can just take data, put it through a thing and go, we're doing this and we're not doing that, and don't have any argument about whether you're going to do why, why you're not doing that, but just concentrate on what your machine tells you, then you'll be able to make money. It doesn't happen that way. Mm. So, so how have you managed to do it? Um, sounds like you managed to do the data thing pretty well. What, what's well, your secret? Well, 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 we started 12 years ago. Okay, all right. We started getting information 12 years ago, and now we have we have a data warehouse which which has a billion dollars a year of our own product information that we've got. So that's compounding. Okay, it's a build up, and then what we've done is. We take the information that we want to know and that we need and we suck it out of what the insurers give us so that we can do claims analysis upon what they on, on what we don't have in our own uh, digital environment, but in the environment they've got. So we backfill it from that point of view. I was talking to a, a big aviation insurance company and they were saying that the biggest the biggest discussion they have with all of the in the sort of aviation insurance industry is about the threat of climate change, which kind of surprised me. I, mean, I, I didn't well, think it would well, be well, that. Well, it shouldn't surprise you because the bigger, biggest polluter in in the world is the jet aircraft flying across. I subscribe to the NASA climate change analysis that they do. It's not political. It's just a lot of data they collect. And... When all the planes stopped flying, CO2 dropped dramatically. The coal-powered fire stations were still bulging out there, perceived or, or real problem. You had the cars off the road because people weren't driving, and you had the planes not flying, and you had the CO2 dropping. So if you say that we cannot live without aviation in, in this modern world, I think that's a fair statement to make. Uh, although the Zoom meetings or the Teams meetings may have paid to that, okay. But still, and all, I'm still I still have to go to London in, a, in 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 ten days' time. If you accept that aviation has to exist, then it cannot exist in the current system of propulsion. So what you've now got is the realization that smaller planes will come back. It's a complete paradigm shift. They've gone from, you've got a big, you've got to fill them up with people and fly them. So you've got the aviation industry working on, believe it or not, going back to propeller-based turbojet uh, engines that that push and don't have the, have the burn rate that they have. So th there's going to be a complete, a complete epiphany by the, they have to change the propulsion mechanism. The first, the first commercial electric planes are flying at the moment in test. Okay, so the, the aviation industry is going through shits all because you're going to have, I mean, seriously, a 747-400 with four big – you can't give them away. You can go and buy one for $23 million if you want to somewhere, you know. Like, <laughs> so, but where's all the pressure to do this coming from? Is it just regulation or is it – it's regulation. There used to be a, a triple-jetted small plane. They were called fan jets here. 
they couldn't modify the engines to comply with the noise. So a lot of people had them and they lived in New Zealand, okay? <laughs> and so they were registered in New Zealand and they could transit in and out of Australia, but they couldn't operate in Australia. So they got around it. So those planes went from being worth a lot of money to being worth bloody nothing. So if you if you think that the average price of a 380 is around around the 200 million mark, if they're guzzling gas and belching out CO2, that capital investment that you've made in them is going to be worth jack shit. So that transition from having big, powerful planes, that's got to change. You couldn't land noisy planes at airport. They said, you can't land them. When are they going to say, you can't land CO2 polluting old at our airports anymore? When that hits, then there's huge pressure. Now, what should the insurance industry do? What should do with what it's, what it's going to do with coal is say, you have to get your emissions down to X and we're not going to insure you if you don't give us a plan that says, hey, we're, we're at this now and this is our stage to get down to this and, and you'll be able to continue to insure them. I, I think in many ways the aviation industry will get to that stage as well where there'll be pressure to say, do not insure those those CO2 belching big mothers, okay? Only insure these eco-friendly ones that are, uh, that, that are, are doing the right thing. But, for the, the, again, like, like coal, the insurance industry has got to accept that, well, okay, we're, we're going to, we're, we're not going to stop insuring nickel said a bit, I was at a, a round table and people going, we've got to stop insuring coal. I said, yeah, let's shut the coal stations down. They said, yeah, well, that's what we should be doing. I said, yeah, well, how, how are you going to communicate? Because you won't have any electricity in Australia to be able to communicate. It's certainly a challenging issue. Robert, thanks a lot for sharing your thoughts on lots of topics. Thanks a lot. And Robert Kelly is CEO and co-founder of the big Australasian broker network, Steadfast. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to IB Talk. For the latest episodes, be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher and Apple Podcasts.